I want to invite you to to take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're actually going to be looking at chapters 18, 19, and 20 this morning. Um, Let me begin, though, by asking this question. Why doesn't God just wipe out COVID-19? Why doesn't God just eliminate every rippling effect of that disease, of all disease? Why did He allow it in the first place? These kinds of questions are being asked today, but they're not actually new questions. They're just rephrased questions. We tend to ask why any time hard things come into our lives. Why the cancer? Why the layoffs at work? Why the sickness of a child? Why the tragic accident? You see, underneath these why questions is a basic understanding that an all-powerful God who rules over every molecule of the universe at every moment in human history can do anything He wants. Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. The fact of the matter is, is that God can stop cancer. God can stop tragedy. God can stop financial ruin. God can stop COVID. God can stop death. He can protect us from all of this and more. And that's why there are why questions. Because God can protect. Many of us could tell stories of when we know that He has a round of layoffs that left us untouched, a tornado that steers another direction, a reckless driver that just misses, an injury that should have been fatal but wasn't. God does protect. What we can't figure out is why there are times that He does and why there are times that He doesn't. Why would an all-powerful God who knows every bit of danger I'll ever encounter not protect me? I'm a Christian. I'm living for Him. Why? Well, this morning as we come to 1 Samuel, what we're going to see is that God does, in fact, protect David. And as we think about the protection of God for David, I believe we'll gain insight into these why questions. Before I read some of the text, let me set the scene. Saul, because of his disobedience, because of his unwillingness to repent, is going to lose the throne. God's Spirit no longer empowers him. Instead, a harmful spirit torments him. And replacing Saul will be David, secretly anointed by Samuel, unknowingly brought into the court of Saul as a kind of music therapist. When Saul's torment comes on, David's harp comes out. Not only that, but by God's Spirit, David defeats Goliath. 
And so he's not just a harp player, he's also a warrior, and everyone sees him that way. And the text we'll look at today follows right on the heels of that famous battle. But what I'm going to do to help get our minds going in that direction is to read the first 16 verses of 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18, the first 16 verses. This is what the Spirit says in the Word of God. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. It is fully true. It will never mislead us. Lord, we come because we need Your words. In it, You have given us the words of life. Where else would we go? Your Word is sufficient for all of life and godliness. And so now as we study it, we pray that You would open our hearts to receive it, open our minds to understand it, that we might know it and love it and believe it and live according to it, by the power of your Spirit, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, to navigate these three chapters, what I'm going to do is use two headings and then ask one question. The first heading is to think about David's problem, all right? So, these first 16 verses that I've read lay out David's problem pretty well. On the one hand, everybody loves David. Uh, Jonathan loves David. Remember, Jonathan is Saul's son. He is heir to the throne. 
but he is loyal to David, the one who will actually sit on the throne. Many others would look at Jonathan and say, what are you doing? This is the guy who's going to take your throne. But Jonathan loves him. He sees that the Lord is with him, and he loves him. It's the love of a great friend, of a brother. You see it in verse 1 there that we read. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. That same phrase again in verse 3. He loved him as his own soul. And then in chapter 20, verse 17, you read it again. Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And Jonathan makes a covenant with David, a commitment to be loyal, to act in David's best interest, to be faithful to him. That's why in chapter 18, verse 4, Jonathan gives David his robe and his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. He's basically saying that what's mine is yours. I am at your disposal. I am yours. I will be faithful to you. We are bound by a covenant of friendship. And now while these chapters are not about friendship, this, this, commit, this kind of commitment is exemplary for us. We need more of this kind of loyalty in our days and in our lives. In friendship, Christians should be committed through thick and thin. In marriage, of all people, Christians should understand the sobriety and the seriousness of the marriage covenant. We should be the ones taking it most seriously. We should be committed to faithfulness for better or for worse till death do us part. It's exemplary also in the church. I mean, when our membership at a particular church is a matter of comfort and pre uh, preference then that commitment is about as strong as a, day, as a dandelion's white tassels. You know those white tassels on the dandelion? And when the, when the winds of change or turmoil come, we just let go and go plant ourselves somewhere else. What we need is to remember that our membership, our relationship with one another is covenantal. We have agreed to worship together, to serve together, to encourage one another, to build one another up, to care for one another, to, to be a church family. And when your roots grow deep like that, your relationships grow deep, and there is more potential for spiritual growth. Okay, we, we need to see Jonathan and David as exemplary in the way we ought to commit ourselves to loving one another. But Jonathan's not the only one who loves David. Michael loves David. Now, in our ears, that sounds like a man's name, but that's a woman's name. That's Michael's wife. Look at chapter 18, verse 20. Now, Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David, loved him. Now, as we'll come to find out, she is Saul's second choice for David to be his wife. But in God's providence, that's who David marries. And Michael loves him. She's committed to him. And we'll see how that plays out later. But Jonathan loves Michael. Jonathan loves David. Michael loves David. Everyone loves David. That was the last verse we read in, in, in chapter 18, verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David loved him. So on the one hand, everyone loves David, but on the other hand, not everyone loves David. Saul doesn't love David. He loves that David is successful in leading the army, but he doesn't love 
David himself. Why? Well, because the Lord is with him. Verse 12 of chapter 18, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. Not only that, everyone loves David. That's a big problem for Saul. Everyone loves David more than they love me. That's what he would write in his journal if he kept a journal. And how does he respond to all of this? How does, how does this lack of love come out? Well, in a few different ways. First, there's anger and jealousy. Chapter 18, we read it in verses 6 to 9. These women are coming out, and at the end of verse 7, uh, celebrating the victory, they say, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And then verse 8, and Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? In Saul's mind, his fame and his power and his influence and his kingdom are threatened by David's success. It's eating away at Saul. Well, they just love him so much, they're just going to give him the whole kingdom. This is why in verse 9, Saul eyed David from that day on. But there's not just anger and jealousy, there's also fear. That's what we just read in chapter 18, verse 12. Saul was afraid of David. And then in verse 15, when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. It means terror. And then again, later in that chapter, in verse 28, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. So I was angry and jealous and fearful, and the fact of the matter is his heart is full of hatred. Hatred. This anger, this fear, this jealousy result in anger, which, which hatred, which shows itself in this attempted murder that comes back over and over again. I mean, Saul wants to kill David himself. We read about the fact that he hurled his spear at him, and David evaded him twice. Well, in chapter 19, the same thing will happen again. Saul tries to set David up to be killed by the Philistines, uh, requiring David to kill a hundred of them and bring proof in order to marry his daughter. Saul tells Jonathan in chapter 19, verse 1, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Then in chapter 20, Saul is so furious that when he realizes that Jonathan is on David's side, listen to what happens. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You are a son, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. This is not a Mother's Day card that Saul is writing here. I mean, if you need to double check your Mother's Day card, this is not anything close to what it should say. Not perverse, rebellious woman. But this is his anger coming out in words. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Saul hates David. And it's no real surprise that anger and hatred come out in seeking to murder another. We learn in the New Testament, in the New Testament, that Murder is rooted in anger and hatred. 
Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. See that parallelism? You've heard it said, murder, you'll be liable to judgment, but the very anger that would drive you to murder will make you liable to judgment. Anger is intimately tied. But then in 1 John 3.15, we see everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. If you hate someone, you are a killer. You may not take out a knife or a gun. You may not actually carry it out, but hatred is murder in the heart. This anger, this jealousy, this fear, this hatred toward David is really all rooted at the deeper root beneath all of those things. There's the murder. Underneath that, there's the fear, the jealousy, the hatred, the anger. And underneath that, do you know what's there? Pride. Saul's love of himself. That's what prevents him from loving David. The same is true of us. The more that you love yourself, the less you will love others. That's why Jesus calls us to die to ourselves. We can't actually love God or love others the way we should unless we die to ourselves. So like Saul, when you are committed to loving yourself, prioritizing yourself, then you know what will happen? you will fall prey to unrighteous anger because you're not getting what you want out of the people around you. You're not getting what you want out of the circumstance in front of you. And so you have unrighteous anger. You'll fall prey to jealousy because they have what you want. And even more, they have what you are convinced you deserve. If you love yourself, if you prioritize yourself, you'll fall prey to fear, perceiving others as a threat to your personal kingdom. You'll even fall prey to hatred. Maybe you won't be able to stand the sight of that person or anyone who's connected to them. Friend, when you are unrighteous in your anger, when you're jealous, jealous, when you are in fear, when there's hate in your heart, know this, that love of self has taken over. And when you see that love of self, you need to know that it is your enemy and you need to put it to death. You need to be killing the love of self before it kills you. You must repent. I mean, just imagine, when Saul, met, when Saul met David, he never would have imagined hurling a spear across the table at him. He liked the kid. But now, because of his love of self, he can't stand him. He hates him. What might the love of self drive you to that you now think is unimaginable? Oh, I would never do that. Oh, I would never, never commit adultery. I would never steal from my company. I would never undermine the success of others. I would never do that. The love of self 
will take you there if you do not be aware, if you're not aware of it and if you are not fighting against it. Beware the love of self. So everyone loves David, but not everyone loves David. Saul loves himself, and this is a serious problem for David, which takes us to our second heading, which is God's protection. So David's problem, and now God's protection. Every step of the way, while Saul tries to kill David, God protects David. And he protects him in multiple ways. He protects him, uh, first of all, through Michael. So God protects him through Michael, his wife. Look at chapter 18, verses 17 to 20. And see how they ended up getting married. Saul said to David, Here is my eldest daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him. Now it seems like a random event, like why is this even in the Bible? That Saul, <coughs> excuse me, that Saul started out saying, well, here's me, Rab, look at her. I mean, this would be great. You go out, you know, why don't you fight my battles, and you can have me, Rab. And Saul's all the while thinking, well, he'll obviously die in battle. But Merab goes off and marries another man. He, she ends up with somebody else, and Saul thinks, well, what am I left with? Well, Michael loves him. That'll be good. We'll, we'll snare him that way. It seems like a completely random event, but it's actually not, because Michael saves David. Michael's love for him drives her to save him when uh, Saul is plotting to kill him. Look at chapter 19, verses 11 to 17. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image, like a, like a, a statue, uh, that was often used for, uh, to represent false gods. But she takes a statue of sorts and lays it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head, and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to, to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, Well, he said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So through all of this, Michael is used to save David. Put all that together. God rules over every aspect of life. There is not a single detail, a single decision that does not fall underneath the absolute sovereignty of God. So when Merab, her older sister, goes off and marries another man, that is of the Lord, so that Michael can be David's wife. And so that Michael, when the time comes, can protect and save David. God protects David through Michael. God also protects David by his spirit. Now, right after this, you know, once he's let out the window, David flees. 
He runs to Ramah, where he meets the prophet Samuel. Samuel remembers the one who anointed him. But Saul finds out and sends men to capture him, and the Spirit of God isn't going to let him do a thing. Look at We're going to keep reading, starting in chapter 19, verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Now skip down to verse 21. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. Oh, sorry, verse 20. When they sent, then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent others messengers, and they also prophesied. Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. You see what's happening? The Spirit of God isn't even letting them get near him. As soon as they come in, they come into this group of prophets that's prophesying, and the Spirit of God comes and says, uh, not so fast, you will be under my control, and they immediately begin prophesying. Next group, same thing. Next group, same thing. Keep going. Verse 22, then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, in, and as he, went he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah, and he, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah. You see what happens? Saul sends all these groups, and then he says, well, I'll just go myself. And he goes, and he finds Samuel, and he just begins, the Spirit of God comes upon him, and he begins to prophesy, and he strips down, he's laying on the floor naked. I mean, he's completely humiliated. The king is humiliated by the Spirit of God, and yet he's uttering prophecies. The Spirit is obviously doing this protecting David, and so David again gets away. God protects him through Michael. God protects him by the Spirit. God also protects David through Jonathan. That's what we see mostly. Remember, Jonathan makes a covenant with David, pledging his loyalty to David, and he keeps his word. He protects David. He protects him by intervening for him. In chapter 19, verses 2 to 7, after Saul tells Jonathan and his servants that they must kill him, Jonathan basically says, what, what has he done? Don't sin <clears throat> by going and killing someone who has done nothing. And Saul pledges uh, in verse 6, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David and told him. And so David actually comes back, but Saul doesn't keep his word. In the very next paragraph, they're sitting at dinner, and, Jonathan hur and Saul hurls a spear again at David and tries to kill him. And so David gets away, <clears throat> and Jonathan protects him again by, war by warning him. And this is what happens in chapter 20. Jonathan comes up with a plan to let David know he's going to confirm whether Saul is out to really kill him or not, because it's hard to tell, because Saul is being tormented by this harmful spirit, and it's hard to tell whether he's really committed to it. So Jonathan's going to find out. The plan is <clears throat> David's going to be absent from the new moon feast, which was an important time. And when Saul notices if he gets, if he's okay with David's absence, then it's okay for David to come back. It's safe. But if Saul gets angry because David is absent, they'll know he's going to kill him and David is in danger. 
And the way Jonathan's going to let him know is basically through what would be a routine excursion. He's going to go out shooting, and he's going to take his... He's going to have a, a servant boy with him. He's going to shoot a few arrows, and then he's going to send his boy out after him. And if he says, oh, no, 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 come back. The arrows are on this side of you. Then it's okay for David to come back. But if he shoots the arrows and sends the boy, and he ends up saying, go farther, go farther. The arrow is beyond you. The arrows are beyond you. Then that is the key to get out of town, David. So that's the plan. Let's pick up the story in chapter 20, verse 24. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him, he is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, His father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him. To strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Saul's anger, Saul's hate will spill over onto anything <clears throat> and anyone connected to David, even his own son. And so he says, he clarifies again, David must die. And so Jonathan sees the writing on the wall. Now before we go on, there is a difference here. It is important to notice that there is a difference here between Jonathan's anger and Saul's anger. Saul's anger is focused on self. What I'm losing. And his response in anger is to commit murder. That is unrighteous anger. It is focused on self and it responds sinfully. Jonathan's anger is focused on David, what David could lose. And he responds, you noticed, by fasting in grief. He grieves because his father disgraced David. And he's going to also go and protect David's life. This is righteous anger. Now, I pause to say that because in our day, it seems that people just say they can be angry about anything. And anger is, you know, as long as I don't blow up, you know, as long as I don't kill somebody, as long as I don't hit somebody, my anger's okay. Well, that's just not the case. Because anger that is unrighteous uh, is not just unrighteous in its expression, it's unrighteous in its reason, 
Righteous anger is angry for a righteous reason and responds in a righteous way. Let me give you just a current uh, uh, present-day example. It is righteous to be angry at the abortion industry in this country. It is righteous. It is unrighteous to blow up abortion clinics or shoot abortion doctors because of that anger. You see, righteous anger is not just about being angry for the right reason. It's also about expressing that anger in the right way. God gives us anger to stir us up, to solve problems, not to create more problems, not to sin. We are not given license to do whatever we want because our reason for anger is righteous. So that's just something that the next time you're angry, just think through that. What am I wanting that I'm not getting? Who is actually losing? Is everything focused on me? Or is everything focused on the fact that someone has sinned? The glory of God is on the line. I happen to be involved, but my anger is is directed at the fact that this person is disgracing another person. They are attacking the glory of God. Not everything's about me. And then how do I respond? How do I speak? What tone do I use? What actions do I take? These are all important things. Now that's just a side note. Going back, Jonathan's anger is righteous, and this righteous anger leads him to protect David. So he shoots the arrows, tells the boy they're beyond him, so David needs to get out of town, and the text finishes with this touching scene, verses 41 and 42 of chapter 20. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. All through these three chapters, we see very clearly that God protects David, protects him through Michael, protects him by his spirit, protects him through Jonathan and this covenant. Even in the last chapter, in David and Goliath, remember David was saying God delivered him, protected him from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and God protected him from Goliath as well. Why? I mean, it's said a few times in these three chapters, the Lord is with him. David has a sure problem, but God's protection is even more sure, and that actually raises a question, and this is where we will finish is by considering this question. Why doesn't God protect all his people all the time just like he does with David here? This takes us back to the why questions from the beginning of the message. The whys of this particular time in history, the whys of all of life. Why doesn't God protect us from harm? Why doesn't God protect us from pain? Why doesn't God protect us from loss, from cancer, from layoffs, from sick and dying children, from all sorts of awful things? Why? After all, look what God does for David. He providentially protects him in these amazing ways, in ways 
that David doesn't even comprehend. David's life is spared. He's kept from harm. The spear that Saul hurls multiple times doesn't even scrape him. So what's going on? Why is it that David gets away, but I don't? Why doesn't God protect me like that? Well, these why questions are important. And here's my answer. First of all, to be clear, there are probably thousands of ways that God has protected us that we would never even know because we never saw the danger coming because God put it out. So let's just start there. Sometimes we see that protection clearly. Most times we don't. But when we look at the bigger picture, I deduce this. God's protection is a servant. It's not the master. Okay? God's protection is a servant, not a master. God's protection is not his end game. God's purposes are his end game. Everything that God does works to accomplish his purposes, including his decisions about protection. So now think about David. God's purpose for David is clear. We saw it back in chapter 16. God anointed David to be king. So David will be king. Nothing will stop that. Not even the angry, jealous, hate-filled King Saul with military resources at his disposal. But God's purpose is even bigger than David getting to the throne. Because God's purpose is that through David, Jesus Christ will come, the King of kings, and He will sit on the throne of David forever, and He will save the world. And listen, if just one of Saul's spears hits its target, then all that goes down the drain. And God won't let it happen. His plans will not be overturned, not even by sinful powerful King Saul. So think of it this way, and I take it as the main idea here, that God's protection serves God's purposes. You have to put these three chapters into the context of what God has already said He's going to do and what He's going to do, not just in David's life, but through David and in human history. This protection doesn't stand alone. It stands within the context of the purposes of, the, of redemption that God has for the world. So now, back to our why questions. When we, we need to start with God's purposes. God's purpose to save us, to grow us in faith, to refine our character, to give us hope in Christ, to deepen our love for Him, to make us more like Jesus so we'll glorify and enjoy Him more. We need to put the why questions into perspective, that whatever God does, whatever God allows, whatever God ordains, it will work to accomplish His purposes. We read that in Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers." So when it comes to protection, God's protection serves God's purposes. And if protecting us accomplishes God's purposes, God will protect us. 
nothing will touch us. That is incredible to think about. God is doing that for missionaries in dangerous places all over the world even now as they continue to preach the gospel. And as I said, He's done it for us a multitude of times that we can't even comprehend. But the fact is we live in a dangerous world of swerving cars and stray bullets and diseases running rampant. If he if his protection accomplishes his purposes he will do it if protection does not work to accomplish his purposes then the harm will come the pain will come the suffering will come now we know that suffering serves God's purposes we've looked at that many times as a congregation that it provides you know it grows us in character teaches us perseverance, it increases our hope in Jesus, all these things. But I'm talking about that specific thing that we would want to be protected from. If protecting us from that will not serve God's purposes, then the harm will come. And even as God is protecting missionaries now in dangerous places, I mean, Jim Elliott comes to mind and the other four men who were in Ecuador with him seeking to reach the Alca Indians, they died there. These are men committed to the Word of God, committed to the Gospel, committed to the mission of God, committed to reaching the Alka Indians. Why didn't God protect them so they could continue preaching? The answer is that without that protection, with their death, through their death, Their death was a means by which God ultimately saved many Alka Indians. Because God did not protect them. It's a good question. Which one is more important to you in this life? God's protection or God's purposes? Friends, we could tie ourselves up in knots wondering why God hasn't wiped out this disease or that disease, wondering why we're experiencing the rippling effects of COVID-19 and we will continue to do so. But here's what we can know. Here's what comforts our souls as Christians. God's purposes are being worked out. They will prevail. Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, if that doesn't convince you, I just want you to think about this. It was actually a lack of protection that brought about God's greatest purpose in human history. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not protected from a death that, humanly speaking, was unjust and premature. Yet through this death, this lack of protection, God provided salvation and ultimate protection Not from everything that may harm us in this life, but from everything which would harm you in eternity. Through the lack of protection for Jesus, God has protected us from eternal punishment in hell. And this salvation is a covenant. Jesus called it the covenant in His blood, a covenant greater than Jonathan's. Jonathan risked his life, almost died to save David, but Jesus gave his life, died the death we deserved. He wasn't protected from the wrath of God. 
so that we could be. And this covenant guarantees that no matter what, the Lord is with us. He is for us. He is committed to us. He is loyal to us so we can trust Him even when pain and suffering come knocking on the door or come barreling through the door. God's covenant with us in Jesus Christ gives us an anchor of hope to hold on to, to keep us, to hold us surely, to protect us from that which would really kill us forever, sin. Don't you want in on that covenant? Don't you want protection from hell, from God's wrath? Only Jesus Christ can do that. And if you will come to Him by faith, you will be protected. We sang it earlier. Hitherto thy love has blessed me. Thou hast brought me to this place, and I know thy hand will lead me safely home by thy good grace. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, bought me with his precious blood. That blood can cleanse you of your sin and make you right with God if you would turn to Jesus in faith. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize your power, your greatness, your glory, your majesty, your beauty. The fact that you can protect us from anything that would harm us. We glory in your power to do that. We recognize that we can't even recognize all the ways that you have protected us in our lives. And we also bow in submission to your wisdom. That in your wisdom, protection is not always what we need, what will accomplish your purposes. And so we pray and ask you, Father, to give us faith to trust you when the pain comes, that even when the why questions come to our lips, that we will remember who lies behind everything. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Thank you that in Jesus Christ we are protected from your wrath forever so that that which could really harm us we will never experience. We praise you. We thank you. We pray this week that we will live as those who know that in the perspective of eternity we dwell under the shadow of the Most High and nothing will ever change that. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.